right, so we're going to continue in our series in Exodus. If, you, uh, if it's your first time here, I'm glad you could be here with us, that you can join us as we worship this morning. My name is Ricardo Stewart. I'm one of the pastors here. I get the opportunity to do a bulk of the preaching and will do such this morning. Uh, last week we started a series in the book of Exodus. If you were not here last week, I highly encourage you to go to our website or to download our app, Redemption Tempe. Um, at the App Store, and listen to the message from last week. It was amazing. Um, I can say that because I didn't teach it. Um, that would be awkward if I was like, listen, if you weren't here last week, you better go back because, wow, I was on one. So, so there's, there is uh, Josh Butler uh, uh, started off, and I thought he handled the overview and the teaching of, of Exodus 1 and some very, very difficult topical topics in and, uh, and a very helpful and gracious posture and way that uh, I think it's worth all of us to be able to hear. Today we're going to look at chapter 2, and it's going to be the introduction of Moses. And if you know anything about Exodus, um, Moses is used by God to deliver his people out of slavery. And if you go, oh, why, why did you spoil it for us? Okay, Exodus has been around for a while. Um, and so just so you know, God's about to do some stuff. And there's some other stuff that he does throughout the rest of the hundreds and hundreds of years since Exodus was around. So we're going to look at um, today is the beginning of Moses, and it begins to show um, how Moses was born and his family and story and so forth. Um, and then we'll get into a lot of the stories that some of you may or may not be familiar with, like the burning bush and so forth. But for today, one of the things we want to be able to look at is highlight that the story of the Exodus and the story of the Bible as a whole is is not Moses' story or Abraham's story or Noah's story, it's God's story. And, and what it shows for us is this is not just a story about Moses, it's a story about how God and his sovereign story um, begins to work in our lives. So that means if we want to understand our story as it relates to God, we really need to begin to understand God's story. At the same time, we, to know God's story, we've got to be able to know our story and how they converge. Here's what I mean. Oftentimes when we tell Christians to tell your story, or you guys may hear it as tell your testimony, what happens is people say, um, oh yeah, I was born in this family, or I did this, and, and I was kind of an idiot, and then at 22, God saved me, and God entered my life, or God showed up. As if for the first 22 years, God was like, I don't even know who that is, right? <laughs> um, but, and then we get what we're saying in those stories, we're trying to say, this is when I became a Christian, this is when I was converted, or whatnot. But what we see is God's providence, his divine providence, has been in our lives. And if we have the opportunity to be able to stand at a point, those of us who are in Christ, we can look back and see the different ways and maybe areas that God has been in our story. And even for those who in this room that are not Christian um, and may not believe in God, there's ways and areas that you can even describe. Like, I don't know if I would call it God or not, but I do remember these certain things. And it's not just in the highs. In fact, oftentimes it's in the bottom. And it's in the bottom where we begin to experience even God's presence, even though God doesn't take that away. Um, what we see here in the context of Exodus is just kind of a brief overview is Exodus is a continuation of the book of Genesis. Um, if you want to understand the Bible, we've said this, you can, you can take the Bible and split it into two parts. Not the Old Testament, the New Testament, but Genesis chapter 1 through 11, part 1. Genesis 12, all the way through the end of the Bible, part 2. Because we have the Genesis 1 through 11 as a creation account and how sin in the world and how things got broken and, and, and people got dispersed. But then Genesis 12 God steps in again and says, I'm about to do something. I'm going to redeem all of creation, and I'm going to do such not by snapping his finger, but I'm going to do such by choosing a people. And he starts with one person whose name is Abraham. And he says, Abraham, listen, I'm going to bless your family and use your family for the sake of others, and everybody who blesses you will be blessed, and everybody who curses you will be cursed. So he begins to work through this family. And as you will see, as you read through Genesis, this family is not the ideal family. This family is wildly and highly, pro, like, like, dysfunctional. 
it's like my family and it's like your family. You say, my family ain't dysfunctional. It's like my family and it's like your family, right? It's, it's literally like a continuous episode of Jerry Springer again and again and again, right? Like Steve, Steve, Steve. So you have, you have, you get to the very beginning of Exodus and God's people, one, first at the end of Genesis, you have Joseph is now in the land of Egypt. Um, he had been sold into slavery, but God and his, and his just providence in Joseph's life and life of his people has him in a position of power. His family and him, they get reconciled, there's forgiveness. The whole family comes to Egypt. There's about 70 plus, and now it's been hundreds of years. The Pharaoh that used to be there that liked Uncle Jojo, don't like him. He's gone. They don't like him anymore. They don't care about him. Uncle Joseph is gone. There are hundreds and hundreds to millions of God's people that are in the land, and there's a new Pharaoh, and the new Pharaoh says, this is not working good for us, so what we're going to do, which often happens, is we're going to use our position of power and we're going to oppress this particular group of people. And one of the ways we're going to oppress them is we're going to make them slaves. So they make bricks and stuff, and so they can, we can build our entire country off of their backs. We don't want them to take over us, and so we want to get rid of all the males. They can no longer have any sons. And so that's where we picked up last week, um, and this week there's a picture of a son that's being born. So as you think about it, before we jump in, think about your own story. See how God's providence was in Moses' story. And how God's providence, his divine providence, is also in your story. So let me pray. I'm going to ask God to bless our time. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather, to look at your word together, and allow your word to shape and fashion and form us, Lord, in, in a way that we can have and receive and sense the thickness of your presence. God, I pray that there would be repentance and joy in our lives, that we would be affirmed in who we are in you, and to be able to see your providential hand in areas of our life. Father, we praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, so 1996, I believe I was in eighth grade, um, we had me, my mom, and my brother, we got in a really, really, really bad car accident, like really bad car accident, and it almost took my brother's life to the point that he was in the hospital for days and days and days. And while I was in the hospital, he would kind of fade in and out from the different medication that they had him on. Um, he had, um, like I said, he had broken collar, collarbones and face. It was bad, okay? And when he finally came to around three or four days in and was, like, really aware, he can vaguely remember some of the things that were happening to him in the hospital. And he was trying to explain to my mom, <laughs> like, hey, this is what they did. They did this to me. They took some x-rays. Um, they, they gave me jello. And he's, like, explaining all this. And, and my mom finally goes, hey, you... You know I was here, right? <laughs> and she's, oh, you were? He's like, I, I've never left. Like, I've been here the whole time. There, there, there came a point where my, my brother was able to acknowledge my mom's presence. And it was almost as if he felt like he needed to re-narrate all of these things. And I feel like we do that with God. That sometimes we believe like we've invited God into our hearts. And by the time that we invited God to our hearts, that was the first time God stepped into our life. was like, wow, tell me more, Right? as if he hadn't been there the entire time. The gospel also lets us know that not only does he, has he been there the entire time, but when he engages with his people, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Well, then that begs the question, then why does he keep allowing all of these things to happen in my life? And oftentimes we go down that road of why does God allow this as if he's unaware? I, I can't answer the question, nor do I think the Bible answers the question um, of why he allows the pain and suffering that we all experience. But the Bible does let us know that he's present and that he knows. We, we got to understand the context of what's happening in, in Egypt right now. 
we got to understand the context that's happening um, in the book of Exodus. Oftentimes when we come to the Bible, sometimes we over-spiritualize it in such a way that we see the book of Exodus as God just redeeming us people. And there were some great things that he did. There were some gnats and some flies and the water turning to blood. It was like a movie made about it that was like really crazy because all of a sudden Moses was like this European guy. And then, and, and then he delivers his people. There's a burning bush. And it's like, yeah, God's a deliverer. As if this wasn't happening in people's like real life. Right? What we have is people in this context... They're slaves, guys. Never in a point in history has slavery ever been good. Right? There was never a moment where we're like, are you slaves? Oh, yeah. I mean, I miss those days. Right? <laughs> like, no. Right? So you have these men and women who are slaves and who are oppressed, and that's the way the story, like, is told from. Oftentimes, many of us, not all, many of us come from a, a position where things are um, comfortable, more comfortable than maybe than others, and we're trying to make sense of the Bible in such a way to make sense of God, but we do it in a way, at an angle in which we come from when we, when we begin to understand the Bible. The Bible is not written from the top down. The Bible is written from the bottom up. That is, the men and women in the stories in which we hear are often those who are wildly oppressed and are looking to know, is there a God who can deliver and who can save? who can transform and who can restore, and the Bible shows us a God who can and who does. And oftentimes it's hard for us to relate to it, so then we over-spiritualize it, we let it hover over the text where the way that the Bible ought to be taught and read is right into the waters of our very life. There, there's a guy, I don't agree with all of what he says um, in a lot, but this particular one I do. His name is Brian Zahn, and he's talking about his wrestle with trying to understand the Bible from that context. And he says, I am an ancient Egyptian. I'm a comfortable Babylonian. I'm a Roman in his villa. What he's saying is, I'm in the position of power. That's my problem. See, I'm trying to read the Bible for all it's worth, but I'm not a Hebrew slave suffering in Egypt. I'm not a conquered Judean deported to Babylon. I'm not a first century Jew living under the Roman occupation. I'm a citizen of a superpower. I was born among the conquerors. I live in the empire, but I want to read the Bible and think it's talking to me. This is my problem. One of the most remarkable things about the Bible is that it, in it, we find the narrative told from the perspective of the poor, the oppressed, the enslaved, the conquered, the occupied, the defeated. This is what makes it prophetic. We know that history is written by the winners. This is true, except in the case of the Bible, it's the opposite. This is a subversive genius of the Hebrew prophets. They wrote from the bottom-up perspective to be able to see what life is like for the other. And we see that even as we begin to listen and hear Moses' story. If you're with me in chapter 2, verse 1, it starts like this. It says, a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. Okay, so here's what this means. Okay, just translate here. Sometimes the Bible uses language and stuff that we don't really know what's going on. Um, it says that a man from the Levite, that's a tribe, he took a woman from the Levite tribe, they're from the same tribe, so a man took a woman. What he's saying is, this husband took his wife. He's talking about when a husband and a wife, right? I know there was a children's ministry overflow. I'm not trying to teach your kids something you ain't taught them already. <laughs> or something somebody else ain't taught them already. All right, so you have... That's what that be. He took her, and she took him, right? Verse 2, the woman conceived and bore a son, 
And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Okay, now again, when it says <laughs> she saw that he was a fine child, she wasn't like, oh, he's going to be fine when he get older. Right? That's not, that's not it. It's not like, oh, this one's good looking. The other one kind of looked like their dad didn't really, you know. What she's saying is it's a creation. It's echoes of creation when God said it was good. Like, this is good. Because Pharaoh said it's not good. Not, for the, not to have a boy. She's saying when she saw this one, she says, this one is good. Right? Can you imagine, right? Put ourselves in the context now. You are a woman in that day. You are bearing a child. You are nervous. Why? Because you know that if it's a boy, that child no longer has the ability in this particular world to live. Like, to live. And once you've given birth to this child, now you have a boy and you know what is expected of that child. That is, a child does not have the opportunity to live. And so you can imagine the anguish of going, what am I going to do with this baby? And we, just, we can't just let this sit in thousands of years ago in Exodus and as if those questions aren't being asked and wrestled with in people's bodies, particularly women's bodies, today. There's probably a student right now in McClintock High School who's going, what am I going to do with this baby? Or at Tempe High, what am I going to do with this baby? And it's not just at the Title I schools, my friends. It also is probably happening at Corona. Because you know what? These sort of realities, it hits people no matter what your socioeconomic background is. Or you go into a different pa uh, place or space. And it's not just teenagers. It might be even adults who are going, I don't know what to do with this baby. Right? So one of the, one of the things of being um, a pastor, but even friends with people, is that you hear the highs and the lows of baby stories. Those who can't have babies those who've had babies, those who've lost babies, those who told they would never have babies, but then God miraculously gives them a baby, and there's, there's excitement, and then there's joy, but then there's sadness, and then one scenario, one person is celebrating the, the, you know, that they've conceived, another one is having one that they've lost, and they're all in the same room, and the Bible says weep with those who weep, but then rejoice with those who rejoice, and there's weeping, and there's rejoicing. It's, just, it's, a, it's, a, it's a weird, hard space that all of us are in, Right? Um, and, and when there is the one, the time that you see where something's pretty miraculous, like, hey, they were told they weren't, weren't able to have babies, but then now they're pregnant, there's like that excitement. And, and those of you who've had kids, you know there's, a, there's an excitement with having a child. Um, there, there is sometimes a unique excitement that happens when you know there's been something out of the ordinary special that God has done to preserve of life. You, get, you know what I'm saying? You guys will know. So here's what we have. So about six years ago, I was doing premarital, uh, like pre-marriage counseling with the couple here that was at the church at the time. And so that was counseling before they get married. And, uh, and we were in, the, in my office and so forth. It was, it was, it was good. And um, the, the gal said, hey, there's a girl on my rugby team. There, she was at ASU at the time. She was a girl on my rugby team. She's pregnant. I'd love for her to meet with you if, you're, if you were cool with that. And because um, and, and she wants to get an abortion and she knew a little bit of my story and my background and everything. And I said, yeah, I'd love to meet with her. So she came in, and she met with me, and the first thing I said is, you know, what do you think I'm going to say to you, right? And the reason I said that is because if you can imagine being a non-Christian person, showing up to a church, meeting with what they probably thought was a reverend or something, uh, <laughs> and, and she walked in, and I was wiping off my face from that Popeye's chicken sandwich I just had earlier, <laughs> and, and, uh, <laughs> and, and so it's, it's, you know, what do you think I'm going to say? And then she says, you're going to tell me to keep this baby and do this and do this. And I'm like, well, all right, well, what, 
asked about your boyfriend. Does he know that, uh, that you're pregnant? And she goes, no, he doesn't know yet. I'm like, well, let's start with this. How about you tell him? Because, I mean, he also had something to do with this, I presume. Um, and, and she's like, all right. Well, then she tells him, and then she emails me back. She goes, hey, he wants to meet too. So fast forward, crazy story. They meet. They're like, listen, we, we, and I'm talking with them about all sorts of options and possibilities they have and so forth. Well, they decided to go, you know what, we're going to keep the child, and we're going to move back to Denver. I said, it would be best for you guys to move back to Denver. I know you're both in school, but you're both from that area. Your family's there. You're, you know, everything you guys need is there. We can get you connected to the church if that's something you want to do. And fast forward, they got connected to the church. Um, they had the baby really, really deep in their relationship with Jesus, and they were going to get married. And then they called me and said, hey, would you want to come do our wedding? I was like, nah, I got other things going on, <laughs> right? <laughs> And I said, absolutely, right? And literally, like, I remember that weekend because our, our oldest son had, was just getting into sports and it was their first, like, uh, baseball championship. They'd made it to the championship. And he's like, you're going to go to my championship game? I'm like, no, buddy, it's just not that big of a deal compared to what I got going on. I don't know if you know, but, dude, dad's doing big things these days, and so I got to go. So we, we, I didn't say that to him. <laughs> he's like, wow. Um, so we went, me and my wife flew to Denver, and it was just, it was just awesome, right? So we get to the house, uh, and... And I'm like, yo, where's the baby? You know, where's Jackson? And they're like, oh, he's sleeping. I'm like, we'll wake him up. Because, you know, babies, they totally like getting wake, waken up from a nap. And so they go get the baby and Jackson, and they bring him, and he's like 10 months, and he's super cute and chubby. And, and, I, and I hold him, and he looks up, and he smiles. Guys, he smiles, I promise you. And then when the mom goes, it's like he knows. My wife, who doesn't really cry, she's crying. And the baby puts his, his face into my neck. I'm crying. I tried to take the baby home. Uh, <laughs> And it was just this incredible, incredible story. And, and I say that to go, in this kid's life, not in all lives, in this kid's life, God, God sovereignly and divinely preserved his life. So there's a four and a half, five-year-old boy named Jax running around Denver right now who, who, who may or may not know this yet, but God has always been at work in his life. And it started with, in some ways, God putting this particular girl named Natalie on his mom's rugby team at ASU, right? Moses, Moses is born, and he's about to have some women step in his life as well. Uh, what happens here, it says in verse 3, it says, And when she could not hide him any longer, she took for him a basket and made it the bulrushes and, and dabbed it with, with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, and the sister, that's Moses' sister, and his sister stood at the distance to know what would be done to him. Now, the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe in the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket and among the reeds sent her servant woman, and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. And then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of water. So, so here's this picture now, right? You have Moses' mom, which you don't hear her name. You don't hear his sister's name, his dad's name. I think intentionally the writer, who we believe to be Moses, is writing this to highlight God's providence in Moses' life. Because later we hear the names. So the, 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 the mother, Moses' mother is going, I, I can't hide him anymore. So she built this, like, like, like 
created kayak for him to, to be in, and just enough that it would stick closer to the edge so he wouldn't be, like, taken away by the currents. And then she gets in the river, and she goes, all right, I'm going to put, look, listen, I'm going to put my child in here and hope that God will do something. Right? Like, I'm going to put my child in here, and hopefully there's someone downstream that is willing to step in and do what I cannot do. Again, we cannot hear this story and think this is tucked away in some Hebrew narrative years and years ago in Egypt. When there are people in our world, people in our country, thousands in our city who are saying, I do love this child. I cannot raise this child. I'm going to put, I'm going to place this child in a system or adoption or foster care or kinship adoption somewhere. And I'm going to pray that a sovereign God somewhere will bring people to meet him downstream, to meet her downstream, right? And we're fortunate enough to be a part of a church that our, many of the men and women in this church are saying, we're downstream. Like, I don't know, I don't know if Moses' mom knew that. I, my assumption is, and then this is all conjecture, is she probably knew because her daughter works for Pharaoh's daughter. And her daughter probably said, well, they probably came home one day and was like, hey, why was work today? Oh, we did what we did. You know, we had to walk around the Nile and make sure nobody was looking. Because, you know, Pharaoh's daughter, she liked, to, she liked to take a bath in there sometimes. Oh, really? What time she normally take baths? Okay. So she probably knew just from the gossip, little TMZ type stuff. So <laughs> she, she, she thought maybe Pharaoh's daughter is down there. Okay. So she puts, she places her baby there, Moses, and then guess what? And it's at the sister, right? God's providence again. The sister, not just the mom, the sister. The sister's looking like, Where, what are you going to do with my brother? Where, where, where are you taking my brother? Now, right, older sisters do that. I told you, I got an older sister, and, and, and no one has my back like Keisha, right? And when I say Keisha has my back and has had my back, she has had my back. She is the ultimate day one forever, okay? And, and by the way, and I've said this before, there's nobody who can touch her. She's, she, her name's Keisha, and every Keisha in the history of this world are undefeated, okay? <laughs> so if she, if she sees... If she sees my mama doing something weird, she can be like, let me step aside and see what's going on. So Moses' sister is seeing, oh, okay, I see where this is going. She goes in the work. She's doing her job at work. Pharaoh's daughter is down there taking a bath, and she sees the baby. And, and she goes, wow, look at the baby. And she's open up. She goes, the baby's crying. And who but who was there? Oh, man, the baby's crying? Pharaoh's or Moses' sister. Oh, man, you know what he needs? He probably needs to be fed. I wonder if there's a woman who's had a baby recently that can still feed babies, all right? I know somebody, I mean, if you need somebody, right? And who knows? I don't know if Moses' mom knew that Pharaoh's daughter would even want to take in and adopt a Hebrew child. Maybe they knew. Like, Pharaoh's daughter thinks Hebrew, Hebrew kids are cute, right? I want to touch the hair, right? And so there's, there's, there is... Context, it's context, context. <laughs> you guys done? All right. Maybe she knew. Right? So then Moses' sister has to go find someone, it says, to nurse him or to find a nurse. Now, when it says find a nurse, don't think like nurse, like our day. Think of someone who's nursing, who's like breastfeeding, okay? They're like, you know. Uh, and I do this not because I've ever done that. I just, I've seen it done. All right, so, so side story, when the boys were young, or no, when Eli was a baby, um, Holly would feed Eli, 
and she'd put the boppy around, and, and Noah would always just watch. And I'm always like, why is it, you know, kids, and kids, you know, he's like 18 months, two years old, he's watch. Well, one time, he went <laughs> and got my airplane, my airplane pillow, and he took his shirt off, and he sat next to Holly, and he was like, I feed Eli. And I was like, <laughs> he doesn't want that, man. Uh, he does not. So Moses, in a weird twist of fate, or we would say God's providence, his mom actually nurtures him. And his mom takes care of him. And what it says was here uh, is that verse 9, it says, And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go, and um, I'll give you your wages. And so the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, so she had him for a while. We don't know how long, but she had Moses. And when the child grew older, it says, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son, and she named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of water, um, which is a foreshadowing of what was to come, is that Moses' name literally means to draw out of water, when later what we're going to find out is God is going to use Moses to deliver his people and draw them through the waters and out of Egypt on their way to the promised land. So this Pharaoh's daughter, this Egyptian woman, has no idea that she's giving the appropriate name for this kid of what God's going to do in his life. Um, so now Moses is separated from his family. Again, we can't think that these are just things that happened years and years and years ago. There was a, this past year, this past summer, I had an opportunity to, I was away with my kids and we were part of this baseball thing. And because uh, he, he still plays that. And... Uh, I was talking to this guy, and he, he was, his son's the same age as my oldest son, and then he had another son who came in, and he goes, oh, this is my son. And I'm like, that's your son? Because this guy looks to be about my age, a little bit older, um, and, but like, you know, like two years older maybe. And this kid, is a, this, is a, this is a grown kid. This is, a, this is an adult, okay? And I'm going, oh, you, that's, your, that's your son? And he's like, yeah, I had him when I was in high school. I'm like, oh, he's, I know you were kind of thinking something. I was like, I was. I was trying to do the math. Um, and he goes, yeah. And then later he tells me this story about him and his girlfriend. Um, you know, when he was in high school, you know, he took his girlfriend. His girlfriend took him. And uh, they, had, they had a baby. And they couldn't raise the baby. So they, they, they were able to place the, the child for adoption. And, and downstream, there was this really awesome godly family that, that adopted him. And he was raised in this family, was open, and he had the opportunity to reach out to his biological birth parents. Um, uh, I don't know all the language on this stuff, so if I mess it up, just know that I've tried. Um, birth parents to, um, to connect, and he did. And so while we were together, he, he was with his dad, not for the first time, but he had been, con he'd been connected with his dad, and it was just like this beautiful, beautiful story. Okay, I shared this same story last service because I shared the same sermon throughout the day. Uh, and this gal came up to me afterwards, and she was in tears. And I'm like, what? What's, what's going on? And she goes, that's my story. She goes, I was raised by a family, and me and my brother got a chance to meet my biological mom, and just recently I got married. She got married two weeks ago, and she was able to come. And she goes, and, and it's amazing because she's not a Christian. She doesn't believe in God, and yet I was placed in this family that is so God-fearing, and I just wonder what my life would have been like if I hadn't been. All right? Like, God is always at work. Like, he's always at work. Even in the mess, I would say because of the mess, right? He's present. And Moses finds himself now in the palace, in the king's table, but things are about to change. Um, one, 
Moses is dealing with what many people deal with. That is, he finds himself identifying with the subdominant culture, that would be the Hebrews, but then he's also living in the dominant culture, that would be the Egyptians. And he finds himself living on that hyphen of both being Hebrew slash Egyptian, or that many people in our country, especially people who are immigrants, people of color, and so forth, find themselves on attention and in the tension. Meaning, what I mean by this is the way I try to tell people is I'm African-American, but I feel like I live somewhere on the hyphen, right? There's a hyphen in between African-Americans. And I said to my black friends, sometimes I'm too white. To my white friends, sometimes I'm too black. Uh, uh, my Asian friends, they're, they, we're, we're tight. And then, <laughs> and, and this is not unique to me, right? This is not unique to me. I'm, I'm talking to another gentleman this morning. He tells me the same thing. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in the gym this past week working on my fitness. And, and, and there's... There, the, this guy that I work out with, and I, he was talking about this documentary. Have you watched this basketball documentary about um, people playing basketball on the res? Um, he's Native American. And I said, no, I haven't seen it. And that's his story because he played basketball, went to college, and so forth. He goes, I was watching it, man, and it made me miss my culture. And I said, hey, I'm going to say something right now because we don't really get this deep in the gym. Usually it's like, you know, where'd you live? Where'd you live? Right? I don't even know his last name. And so I said, um, let me ask you something. And, you know, maybe this might be going too, too deep, but, uh, you know. And I said, hey. Do you ever feel like you grew up in that culture and it made you kind of who you are? But then when you left and you went to college, you played ball, you get introduced to so many other things that like when your family would show up, it's kind of embarrassing sometimes. Like because, you know, your other friends that really know that life and like just the thought of like going back to the res, living the way you live, like it's kind of embarrassing sometimes. But then you get older and you mature and then you miss it. And he's like, bro, nobody has described. That's exactly how I feel. Because I got a daughter. And I'm like, for so long, but like, I want to keep her away from that. Where now I'm like, man, I got to get her back there. He goes, how do you know that? I'm like, man, I just talked to people, man. And I said, I'm a pastor. By the way, I'm going to preach on this on Sunday if you, if you want to. <laughs> if you want to come to church. And he's like, nope. So that was, uh, <laughs> I try it, guys, right? <laughs> Moses is in that situation. And when you're in that situation, sometimes you do feel tugged. And he feels it. Verse 11, one day, Moses when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens. And he saw the Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And he looked this way and that. And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Okay, so here's what's happening here. Just don't, just don't miss this in translation. Um, what happens is he walks out and he's seeing the oppression of his people. So how does he know it's his people? Because he's looking at himself going, I'm raised in this family. And I know in this family someone, you know, one of these does not look like the other. Right? And he's looking out at his people going, they're being oppressed, and he wants to do something about it. And so he steps out, and he sees, he sees that this Egyptian is oppressing this Hebrew person, and it says that he struck him, and he hit him in the sand. What that means is he hit him, and he killed him, and he buried him in the sand. That's all it means, right? Well, it lets me know Moses was not to be messed with, right? Um, no way does God co-sign on this. That's not good, okay? But that's what happened. All right, verse 13, and when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling against each other. So now it's Hebrew on Hebrew crime, and he's not feeling that either. And he said, he said, why do you strike your companion? And he answered, who made you the prince and judge over us? Why do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses was afraid, and he thought, surely the thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled to from Pharaoh, and he stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by the well. So, so what happens the next day, Moses sees Hebrew guys fighting. He goes, hey, whoa, 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 look, we got to increase the peace. Like, you know, like, we can't do this. And then one guy goes, wait, who are you? Are you going to kill me like you killed the other guy? And as soon as he said that, Moses was like, oh, y'all know, 
Y'all heard I killed somebody? I was like, yes, right? And he was afraid. And then Pharaoh found out, and Pharaoh was like, I got to take out Moses. And the Moses, he fled. He fled. And as he flees, what you see is from his narrative is he goes from being born in slavery um, in the south and then going to the north and living in the palace. And then now he's like so far away. He's like in, he's like in the Gila Bin of that area now, right? And he's, sit at a, he's sitting at a well. Why is he sitting at a well? Because it's hot in Gila Bin, right? And he's there. Now, here's what you gonna understand about our narratives. So much of what we do, like our vocation, um, our hobbies, what we do for work, so much of what we do is autobiographical. What I mean is, it's kind of the way that we were raised. Some, sometimes people will say, oh, this person's doing this. I never would have thought he was doing this. I never thought she would become a, and then you actually look back at their story and you go, you know what, actually that makes a lot of sense that you're like that. Like, there's, there's, there's not just a blank slate. Like, when I, when I think about, like, one of the things I really love to do, I tell people all the time, I actually rather pastor than preach. Like, I like to preach, don't get me wrong, it's, preaching's fun, but, you know, being with people is actually better than people just looking at you. <laughs> or, never mind. Uh, <laughs> and, but when I look back at my life, I've watched this over and over again. That's what my mom did. All my mom did was try to care for people, right? To the point where, you know, like, it was probably too much. Uh, not probably, it was too much. And I guarantee you, I know that if my wife were here, because she's here, uh, she would say there's moments where I probably put other people above my family, right? Um, I had to say that because she was going to say it anyway. Uh, and, and so there's, there's a sense where you go, oh, that makes sense that he does this. Well, yeah, God's called me, and, but that makes sense. You, Moses is no different. Moses understands, knows enough of his narrative to go, I was born over there, and I'm from these people, but I'm raised over here. And yet, he's drawn to the sensitivity of, of their oppression and wants to help, but he does it in a way that's, that's not good. He wants to bring about justice, but he does it in a way that's not good. Because oftentimes when we see the issues, when we see the situations of oppression, sometimes when we try to lead in without God's favor, without God's presence, dare I say patience, we kind of make a mess out of something. So Moses now goes, I'm out of that, I'm done, I'm not going to try to heal the issues that are going on in this culture. Well, then he finds himself at a well, and why is that a well? He can't help but care for those who are oppressed. Here, here's what happens. It says now... It says, when Mo Moses heard of it, excuse me, verse 16, now the priests of Binion had seven daughters, and they came to, and drew water and filled the troughs to the water, uh, water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and he saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, how is it that you've come home so soon today? And they said, the Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. And he said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? He called, um, call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. And they gave birth to a son. And they called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So here's what happens. Moses himself, he's at, um, he's at the well. And he's there. And all of a sudden, these women come, seven women come. They're seven sisters. They got flocks. They're working for their dad. And then these shepherds, these other men come, and they run them out. And it says that Moses actually had their back, and he saved them. There's some things we need to learn about Moses. He's not to be messed with. He hits one guy with the one-hitter quitter. He's no longer alive, right? He goes to the well, like, like 
it says shepherds, like plural. They came and somehow he took them out too. I'm starting to think that Moses is akin to Denzel Washington in the book of Eli. <laughs> right? And so he takes these guys out and he just kind of sits back down. And then the seven daughters, they go home and their dad's like, man, that was fat. How did you guys get done so soon? Like it was an Egyptian, which is interesting enough that they thought he was Egyptian. You know why? Because his dialogue was such a way. He went to the university. He spoke a certain way. They said, you don't speak Hebrew. You speak Egyptian. He goes, wait, what do you mean? I speak. So I get it. And so he says, he says this. Why don't you go get him? Because that's hospitality. He fed the flock. You need to bring him home. And so they went out. They brought him home. He ate with them. And, the, and then the father, I'm not really sure how it happened, but the, like he said, Zipporah and you, you guys can get married. And so Zipporah took Moses, and, and Moses took Zipporah, and they had a baby. Right? That's how it works. And so, and he lived with them. Moses was totally content with just going, you know what? My life, I'm a sojourner. That's why he named his son that. I'm a stranger. I mean, imagine, ooh, imagine that identity. I don't really fit with my people because I wasn't oppressed like them. And then I'm not really welcoming the people I grew up in because I'm really, really not like them. And so I'm just going to leave and kind of create my own thing over here. I'm married. I got a kid. Things work here. I'm like a stranger, which is the irony because God actually, <laughs> we're going to see next week, actually calls him himself to actually take him home. And that is the promised land. Here, here, here's, here's, here's something we got to understand that in, when it comes to the, the sovereign or providence, providential hand of God. God doesn't waste anything in our story, right? He just doesn't waste it. And there's stuff that we wish would have never been written in our story. All of us can go, I wish I wouldn't have done that, and I wish this would have never been done to me. And we wish the gospel worked in such a way that God would give us like the men in black thing where we can just zap our minds and as if never happened. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't give us that. He actually gives us a savior. And he gives us a savior that gets it. And we get hints of this, that God is always in the mundane, that God is always at work, even in the ways in which we don't like, even in the pain, even in the loss, that God's present. Because even though this particular narrative of Moses um, takes, takes a turn where it's only about Moses, there's kind of like this dot, dot, dot at the end of this particular story, like, wait, to be continued, but let's go back to meanwhile back at the ranch. Like what was happening in chapter 1. And it concludes here in chapter 2 with this way. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and his last words are this, and God knew. That, what he's saying, and the writer is saying is this, one, when it says God sees, what you're going to see over and over again for this week and next week is God sees, and that language of seeing is that he understands. I wish I can tell you why God allows the crazy crud that happens in our life. It's a, it's, a, it's a mess, right? Like, it's a mess what happens in your guys' lives. It's a mess what happens in my, I mean, it's a mess. And, and you know what? The older we get, it just gets, it just gets worse. I'm being dead, so it's like, this is not good. I thought we were going to end on a happy note. No, right? I remember a time in this church when we, when it was like, everything was about weddings. It was like, at best, it was like, oh, there's a wedding, and it was like, all fun. And then, now there's death. And there's cancer, and we're losing our parents, and we're losing our friends, we're losing our children. We are getting mental health things that are taking over our bodies and our families. We are getting cancer. It, it sucks. And I don't know why 
God doesn't just snap the finger. Daddy, there's something enough for me to just know that Lucy sees. Or Lucy knows. It says that God see and it sees and it says that he knows. And that knowing, the, the Hebrew word there for there, yada, it's not a knowing in a sense of intellectual assent. It's a knowing of experience. That in some ways that God is actually with us in the midst of it. And we know this because the story in itself is not about Moses being our redeemer. We know this story is just one story that begins to point to the greater story. And that is years later, there's going to be another woman who's going to have a baby. And this, same, this, this baby also, because of the king, is not supposed to live. And this woman's going to have to take this baby and take him somewhere else to hide him. But it's not going to be God working on, be, on behalf of working through another person. It's actually going to be God himself in the flesh, namely Jesus Christ. That in the same way that Moses finds himself in the palace, Jesus begins in the palace and leaves the comforts of heaven to come to this world to enter our mess, to enter in oppression, to be able to bring justice and peace. And he doesn't try to bring justice and peace by taking the life of another, but actually willfully co-signing his own death in order that we might have life. That what we see is that Jesus himself sits at the well. And he actually intercedes on behalf of the woman who needs somebody to stand in the gap for her. That Jesus is the one who comes in and he invites those who are no longer a part of the table because of their own sin to be welcomed at the table in which he would shed his blood that we may be able to eat and have life in him. The Bible's never about what you can do. The Bible's never about what this particular character in the Bible did. The Bible's all about God. It's always been about God. It's how his story begins to shape our story. And when we begin the feast on that, now we can sit, right, in our oppression and our slavery. We can look around and look back at the many of Moses' mothers and Moses' sisters and Pharaoh's daughters and the many things and ways in our life in which God has intervened to get us to a place to be able to see him, to know him, and trust him. Even in the darkness, and we could say, he's enough. I don't know all the answers, but somehow... He's enough. Amen? The rest of the story of Exodus is the unfolding how God is a redeemer, how God is a deliverer, and how his miracles in themselves are not just for us to say, wow, but his miracles are just evidence of his grace and how he loves and how he cares and how he wants to restore our lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace in which you give us. We thank you for all the narratives that are in this room those who are rejoicing and those who are weeping and how we can worship together. And there's something about the life of Christ being present, Lord, as we do what we're about to do and, and eat and drink in your name. God, I pray that you would lead us to repentance, that you would lead us to joy, that you would lead us to, to love you in the context of others. That, Father, we would be able to see in our lives the many ways in which you have moved, trusting that you will also move again. God, we praise you in Jesus' name.